Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. It's the second edition in our special series that we're bringing to you jointly with Investing in African Mining in Daba, the premier conference that convenes mining operators and mining investors from all over the world to discuss themes and topics related to Africa's mining industry. My name's Marcus Courage. I'm the CEO of Africa Practice and my co-host today and for this series is Laura Cornish, the content manager from African Mining in Daba. Hello, Laura. Hi, Marcus. Uh, thank you so much for the introduction. Real exciting opportunity and experience to be hosting or co-hosting the second podcast with Africa Praxis. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Well, we had Marit Kital in our first edition. As our audience will know, she's the interim director of the African Mineral Development Center. And today we're privileged to have Marie Chantal Kaninda, who's the president of Glencore in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Good morning, Marie Chantal. Good morning, Marcus. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into the conversation with Marie Chantal, a brief overview of her career. I've had the privilege of knowing you for more than a decade. I first met you when you were serving as Director of External Affairs for Africa at Rio Tinto. Um, you're a Congolese citizen. You graduated from Liège University in Belgium. Prior to joining Rio Tinto, you were with Anglo Gold Ashanti and with Ashanti Goldfields. You were also at the De Beers Group before that. And I think I'm correct in saying that for a while you were at the helm of the World Diamond Council, the first woman to occupy that role. So a pretty remarkable career. And we're very fortunate to have you with us today, Marie Chantal. We're going to focus our discussion today on DRC. As I mentioned, you are president of Glencore in the Democratic Republic of Congo and chairman of the board of directors of Komoto Copper Company, which is, of course, the joint venture between Glencore and Jekamines, the Congolese state-owned mining firm. The Democratic Republic of Congo is synonymous, of course, with copper. But it's also synonymous with cobalt. And cobalt, as we know, is a vital ingredient in lithium-ion batteries for the electric vehicle industry. These are very important commodities, and copper and cobalt are required in greater and greater numbers for the global energy transition. As president of Glencore's operations in the DRC, Marie Chantal oversees the biggest producer of cobalt in the country, but a significant contributor also to the country's cobalt output is the artisanal mining sector. The OECD, the Paris-based economic think tank, estimates that approximately 30% of Congolese cobalt production comes from the artisanal mining sector. So that's a very sizable market share. And we're going to be talking about artisanal mining in this conversation with Marie Chantal. 
because the issues pertaining to artisanal mining are, in some areas, contentious. They're issues related to conflict minerals, to the health risks posed by informal mining activity, and to safety practices, which are not always of a good standard. So we'll turn to those issues with Marie Chantal in just a minute. But before we delve into those, I want to take a step back and to consider Glencore's operations globally and specifically within the DRC. The company is a diversified energy and metals player. It's a company that has a significant contribution to make to the global energy transition, producing as it does many crucial transition metals. We've spoken about copper and cobalt and the prominent role of DRC in the Glencore portfolio, but the company also produces nickel, zinc, vanadium, and many other minerals that are becoming increasingly important given their role in the technologies that must underpin our transition to a low or no carbon energy future. So, Marie Chantal, it's such a pleasure to have you with us today. And there's no one better to talk about the subjects that we're going to be addressing today than you. But I traditionally invite our guests to tell us a bit more about themselves, where they grew up, what they studied, the career choices that they have made and that have led us to the role that they now occupy. So I wonder if I could start off by inviting you to do exactly that. Thank you, uh, Marcus, and thank you, uh, Laura, for um, having me. It's such a pleasure to be um, here. And as you said, I'm Marie Chantal Kaninda. And interestingly enough, I was born in Kinshasa. But then being the daughter of a diplomat, we traveled a fair bit of uh, countries in the world, in Africa and in uh, Europe. And that's where I um, uh, went to school, a bit everywhere. And then I went to Belgium to the University of uh, Liège, where I studied my economics and then uh, decided to come back to the DRC. You mentioned already that I did work for companies like Ashanti Goldfields, uh, Anglo Gold Ashanti, the Beers Rio Tinto, the World Diamond Council. In fact, at the World Diamond Council, I was the second female to be at the World Diamond Council, but the first African and the first Congolese ever to have been heading as executive director of the World Diamond Council. I think a lot of Africans were very proud, and female Africans especially. So um, after the World Diamond Council, I decided to join uh, Glencore because I thought that there were also uh, very positive challenges for me, and I'm happy to have been there for four years. And if while studying, even at university, you asked me if I would have joined the mining sector, I would have said no because I would have been very surprised. I intended to be a banker, but I found myself in the mining uh, industry and never left it. It's such a great industry. I'm also a director at the Standard Bank in the DRC, and I'm married and a mother of two uh, lovely uh, daughters as well. So you've been able to combine your interest in finance and banking with your passion for mining. But I know you also have a passion for supporting young girls and women in their entrepreneurial enterprises and supporting them to gain careers in the mining industry. I hope we'll have an opportunity to touch on that subject and your work in that area 
a little bit later in the conversation. But I want to return to Glencore's operations in the Congo. As president of Glencore in the DRC, you're ultimately responsible for overseeing all of those operations. So perhaps I can invite you to tell us specifically about Glencore's strategy within the DRC and what's of specific importance to you and to Glencore in the country as you pursue that strategy. So what Glencore does in other parts of the world, that's what they do also in the DRC. I think that when you decide to go into a certain jurisdiction, you need to ensure that you work in order to overcome the challenges. So what we do as Glencore is to operate in a responsible way. And we do produce products that sources commodities that enhances everyday life. And in the context of the DRC, as you mentioned, we uh, would refer to copper and uh, cobalt. And that's really what uh, Glencore produces in the DRC through um, Mutanda Mining, which was 100% held by Glencore. But today it is 5% held by the government of the DRC and the rest by uh, Glencore. And KCC has mentioned 25 Jekamine and the rest Glencore. And we have been in the DRC since uh, 2007 which makes it quite a long time in the country. But what is important is we have three main pillars, which is to ensure that uh, we position ourselves as a leader in implementing the carbonization of global uh, energy demand. Secondly, we help to meet the demand for metals needed for everyday life. And thirdly, we respond responsibly to today's energy needs. And I think that that's so key. And that's what we do through KCC. Um, you mentioned the fact that we have the most important number of employees. Regionally, I think we are the biggest employer. And um, when I say employer, I also would add we have very important contractors. We are also one of the major investors in the country. We have invested more than $8 billion in the DRC in this two uh, operation, and that is since we started operating in the country. We are also one of the biggest taxpayers, and we do pay to the state what we need to pay. And uh, for instance, just last year, which is in 2022, we paid $1 billion, $137 million to the state. And this is in terms of taxes, royalties, and other obligations. And as you would know, uh, Marcus, every year we have a report all over the world on all, all the payments that have been done to governments. We are committed to working responsibly in the DRC, and that's what we do because we feel that we are one of the major mining companies operating in country. I'm going to jump in here and thank you for the outline that you provided. And it's so clear that, yes, production is important for Glencore, but so is being a responsible miner. So is being a mining company that sources minerals that are so critical to every consumer and the way that you're positioning yourselves as a business in the DRC, which, as Marcus has mentioned, is definitely known to be perhaps a more challenging jurisdiction by comparison with some other African countries. But I think at this point, it would be good to start to delve into the real topic at hand that we're looking to dissect today. 
and that is around artisanal and small-scale mining. So, Marita, until we've mentioned the scale and size of KCC, we know it's one of the largest producers of cobalt. We know it's a major industrial copper mining producer. What I want to know is how you ensure as a business that the minerals that you do extract in the DRC remain separate from the output of artisanal and small-scale mining, which, you know, can be characterized by child or forced labor. And I suppose what I'm really asking is, how does Glencore guarantee that its supply chain is untainted by these kinds of practices? Thank you, uh, Laura. I think it is an important question. And uh, what I'm happy about is today people seem to understand a lot more that um, you have a difference between industrial mining and artisanal mining. As you say, we do operate responsibly. First of all, this year, just as an example, we have had a lot of different visits on our mine site, whether it's civil society, whether it's journalists, whether it's even uh, diplomats and others that have been able to come and visit our various operations, KCC, MUMI. And this is just, first of all, to show that we have nothing to hide. Lately, we had the visit of international journalists and they were able to see all of that. I think that that's, first of all, key. But what is also important is when you look at the value chain that gives us copper, cathode, or cobalt hydroxide, it is done in a very transparent uh, way. Uh, you can clearly see our raw material, where it comes from, and the journey from the ground to processing and through the export. That's very clear and very important. And then the other point also is uh, we are very happy to say that KCC and Rumi are both RMI certified. And I think that it's those type of certification that also gives insurance to uh, all the external stakeholders. I also want to come back to one of the numbers that was given by Marcus on the importance of artisanal mining in the DRC. Lately, in a meeting with a head of the EITI in-country, he mentioned the fact that the numbers that are currently being given on the importance of artisanal mining in the DRC is completely exaggerated because he was even talking about the number of 20%. I hear Marcus talking about 30%, which is huge. And he is convinced that that number doesn't go beyond 5%. And lately, we have had the same comments from the Ministry of Mines. So apparently, the government of the DRC is now working on the exact number of the artisanal production. So it will be interesting to know what that number is. But I think that what is important for the general auditors of this program, important to understand is that you have industrial production where there's no room for child labor. And then you have artisanal mining where you have a responsible artisanal mining and you have completely illegal artisanal mining. I think that having that uh, separation is important. Marie-Jeantel, some interesting information you've shared about the percentage of artisanal miners in country, it would be very interesting to track that and understand exactly what that number actually looks like. But I want to comment on something, and that was around transparency. And clearly you're indicating or showcasing 
the level of transparency that Glencore has as a business, um, that you're willing to show stakeholders, investors, even journalists, as you've said, what Glencore is doing at its operations. I suppose the downside to that is when you are so transparent and open that your own country citizens know exactly what you're doing and that can open you up to becoming a magnet for the likes of artisanal mining. And in most cases, what actually ha ends up happening is that you have illegal incursions on your concessions. So because Glencore is a leader in understanding and dealing with this, I'd like to know what does Glencore do or how does it prevent these artisanal miners from trespassing where they may construct tunnels or they may mine ore on your tenements without obviously being too heavy handed in your approach to dealing with them. What actual action steps, Marie-Jeantel, do you take in this particular instance? I think that first of all, what I will start by saying is that uh, Glencore is a member of the voluntary principles and human rights. I think that's very, very important. And that will determine the way we deal with artisanal um, mining. It's true that we do have incursions on our concession and it can be a, a very big challenge. As a company, we have invested in the prevention of this artisanal mining invasion. But at the same time, I will say that you have two types of incursions. You first of all have roaming ASM miners who come into an area of active operations in small groups. And then what you ha also have, secondly, is incursions where you have miners who establish themselves more permanently in an inactive area of our co concession. But the way we deal with it, and when I'm talking about the way we deal with it, it's the more uh, roaming ASM miners that do come in small group and tend to try and get into your active operation. And that has happened a few times at KCC. But what we have done is built a T-wall that protects our sites and our employees because the first people that sometimes do get damaged with those intrusions are our employees. So we protect them. And uh, we also have a CCTV network. So that's maybe the first step to protect ourselves. What we also do is reinforce our human resources allocated to security with always, as I say, being a member of the voluntary principle, with capacity building around the voluntary principle and human rights approach. What we also do is deploy security teams around our operations in order to prevent those incursions. What we also do is uh, we communicate a lot with our employees. We communicate a lot with the communities that are living around our operations. And in our social programs, what we have activities that we do to protect, in fact, and to get some of the artisanal miners that are willing to look at alternative livelihoods to integrate other type of activities. That's also something that we do. But when it comes now to intrusions like at our Mumi site, where it's completely illegally occupied operations in which we don't have access, the only thing we have been able to do is to escalate it to the level of the government in order for the government to find a solution to that situation. And for the moment, we are still waiting for the government to revert to us. 
Thank you, Marie-Jantel. And once again, in your answer, you demonstrated Glencore as, as a responsible mining company, because when we think about artisanal miners, we think about the impact or potentially the threat they may have on our all bodies and our concessions. But in your case, the very first thing you demonstrated or highlighted was the potential risk to your own employees and how, mm-hmm. how you do a lot of work to ensure their own safety. And, and that's just a phenomenal response in itself over and above all the other mechanisms you have in place to deal with those, those negative impacts, Marie-Jantel. So wonderful to highlight that. I think I want to put the shoe on the other foot. You know, we have talked <laughs> and spoken about the negative impacts to some extent, but there's also positive outlooks or potentials that we can get from artisanal mining. And I suppose in some cases, I'm sure that, that some of your artisanal miners actually look up at Glencore and emulate Glencore and, and aspire to produce vast amounts of cobalt. And that creates an opportunity to professionalize the sector and increase production from responsible artisanal mining of cobalt. Well, how does Glencore promote compliance in this case with global health and safety practices? Because this is very important when we professionalize the sector and perhaps also the adoption of international human rights standards across artisanal mm-hmm. mining in the DRC. Thank you, Laura. First of all, what I want to maybe uh, add here is the fact that, you know, we are not specialists in working with artisanal miners to improve the way they uh, operate in a responsible way. But what we have done is uh, we have been supporting the fair joining as um, joining the Fair Cobalt Alliance, the FCA, as a founding uh, member with other companies such as Fairphone, Tesla, LG Energy, Save the Children, CMOC, and others, in order to support this organization, which is a lot more uh, professional than us in that domain. And I think that is uh, key uh, for us because we do understand that you can have responsible ASM, but how do we support them? And I think that the FCA does it very, very well for us. So what we also as a company do, and uh, KCC has done it very well, I would say, is in order to find alternative to ASM, KCC social team have been working with some of the females that were working in ASM. They have been able to take them away from ASM and get them to other type of work options, which for some was sewing. So we have created sewing cooperatives for them. Others have been joining agriculture. Others have been joining restoration and all sorts of those different projects. We have also taken some men out of ASM. They are now welders. Um, you know, so we, we have really tried and it's not forcing people to leave artisanal miners, but for those that feel that, you know, this is something that they have been doing because they had no alternative. And especially focusing on female, I think it's so important because what we have realized is When you take females out of artisanal miners, you also, in a certain way, take their children out of artisanal miners. Because some of the children, when they are not going to school, are joining their mothers on the site of ASM. Others coming back from school will go and join their mothers at the ASM site uh, because they are waiting for their mother to go back home. What we have done through these alternatives is we see that, first of all, the mothers do gain more regular revenue. 
And with those revenues that they gain, they are able to improve the living conditions of their family. They are able to send their children to school. And in a certain way, they are keeping their children out of ASM. Something else that KCC has also done that is very interesting is summer camps that we have been doing now for six years, where our children during summer holidays do attend those summer camps. And why is it? Because we had realized that during summer holidays, even the children are going to school. During those summer holidays, we join their parents into artisanal mining sites. And in September, when they have to go back to school, they tend not to be willing to go back to school because they want to stay with their parents. So by having summer camps where they do a bit of schooling, games, eating, and in September, before going back to school, they get a schooling kit to enable them to go back to school. I think that that has also been a very positive experience where we have helped parents and children keep away from artisanal sites. Thanks, Marie-Jantel. Very interesting to recognize and acknowledge the role of women as artisanal miners and the family environment, which can be improved when you provide them with alternative options, which, as you said, they probably didn't even realize that they had, and especially, you know, how that impacts on the children as well. And you've touched on this, Marie-Jantel, but I, I just wanted to explore if Glencore has a strategy around providing alternative livelihoods for artisanal miners in your host communities, et cetera. Is there a strategy? How do you approach finding alternative livelihood options for these kinds of workers around your concessions? I think that I have already talked a bit about our contribution to the socioeconomic development. But I think that what is very important here is we have a, a program that we call EDP. It's an enterprise development program. And this program is mainly focused on local entrepreneurship. We ensure that more than 40% of our supplies do come from those uh, local entrepreneurs. And what we also do is some transfer of capacity. So we ensure that they improve the services, they improve the quality of whatever they are supplying or providing um, to the company. And I think that what is also uh, great is it's not only that they will work for us, so we are improving their capacity, but it's for them to service any other mining company or any other company anywhere else. So we're ensuring that they are not only doing it for us, but they are doing it for the long term and for the province. And I think that that's also very positive for the communities and for the local entrepreneurs. So I did mention that, you know, they were supplying more or less 40% to us. But by 2024, we are looking at increasing that to 50%. And that 50% should stand for more than 500 million USD for only the KCC portion. And I'm sure that Mumi will also do uh, the same. So I think that those are really things that we feel that are very, very important because that will not only help those entrepreneurs improve the, the service they are offering, but improve the quality of life of the family, improve the quality of life of the community as well. And we feel that that's such a great program. And in that program, what we are also trying to do is ensure that 
we have more females integrate those strategies as well. Thank you. Well, let, let me step in, if, if I may. At the outset, I'd said I'd love us to talk um, a little about the energy transition and the contribution of Glencore to global efforts to decarbonise our economies. Glencore's made big commitments to reduce carbon emissions in the short term, medium term and long term. Everyone, of course, is looking to see how companies make their commitments to achieving those Paris targets. In the case of Glencore, that involves closure of at least 12 coal mines globally across your portfolio. And it involves, as I mentioned at the outset, a focus which you are bringing to production of those critical materials and metals that are needed for the global energy transition. So nickel, copper, cobalt, zinc, vanadium and other materials that are so important given the role that they play in the technologies that will underpin our low carbon journey. Please speak, if you will, to um, Glencore's operations in the DRC and how you are applying that global strategy um, of Glencore's in the Congo. Marcus, it's true that we have some very strong commitments. And as I did mention initially, what we commit for Glencore um, internationally, we ensure that we do commit to it also in the DRC as anywhere else. And uh, with regard to energy uh, transition and mobility transition, first of all, we know that copper and cobalt is, is very much involved into this. But what we have done in the DRC, we are using hydroelectric energy and it is supplied by the Inga Dam. And in fact, it is an investment of $450 million done to rehabilitate two turbines at the Inga Dam which enables us bring 450 megawatts from Inga to Kolwezi, more than a thousand kilometers. And out of those 400, 50% is due to the local population. So that's really a very important step that we have done to ensure that we increase our green production. And that electricity gets to Kolwezi. And it benefits also to Kinshasa in a certain way and to others. So uh, that's quite a great um, investment that we have done in order to be successful in all our commitments toward zero emission. It's also important to say that as a result of all of that, we are proudly supplying major EV uh, manufacturers like uh, Tesla, which for us is important. I'm aware that um, a senior executive from Microsoft was in Congo in the last weeks. They were there trying to seek some reassurance for themselves about value chains that underpinned so many of their technologies, for whom the source is the DRC, or more specifically, the areas around Kulwezi. Thank you. So we traditionally end our discussion by inviting our guests to tell us what they're reading, or a book that they might recommend for our audience, or in the age of podcasts, what they might be listening to, or a podcast that they'd like to recommend to our audience. So please, Marie Chantal, can I invite you to do exactly that? Tell us 
what you're reading at the moment, a book you might recommend or anything that you might be listening to. To be honest, I think that, you know, reading depends on the period and on a lot of things. But for the moment, I'm currently reading a book written by a friend of mine, Muriel, called Naponi. And it's a very interesting book relating on the life in Kinshasa, which is, is usually a very active life. And this book mixes at the same time, I would say, emotion, hilarity, sadness and joy related to the life of everyone's, you know, simple person in uh, Kinshasa. It's important for me sometimes to just ensure that um, I know exactly what is happening around me. So I um, wanted, first of all, to ensure that I also support Muriel Munga in this, but it's a very nice book and it makes me think of uh, other things than sometimes mining. Great. Laura, we're coming to the end of our allotted time. So can I invite you to wrap up, perhaps give us a few remarks before we close? Thanks, Marcus. Marie-Jantel, it is always such a pleasure to speak to you. I think the last time we chatted was a year ago in the DRC and, and I always walk away from our, our conversations feeling inspired. You're clearly a, a role model for women in the mining sector and it definitely for me. I think you bring a soft and gentle touch to what you do and, and, and clearly it's, it's very needed in the mining industry and it really shows and, and demonstrates and is reflected in what you do at Glencore and I think they're really lucky to have you. It's been a fascinating conversation around artisanal mining in, in particular and to hear with transparency some of the great work that Glencore is doing in this area and the livelihoods that the business is looking to improve around your, your operations with, with alternative options. So just from my side, thank you again. I am inspired once again and truly appreciate a leading woman in mining what you do, Marie Jantal, absolutely inspiring. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you very much for this very nice words, especially coming from you. Thank you so much. Now, all it leaves me to do is to say thank you to Marie Chantal. Thank you for the time you've given us today to telling us more about Glencore's operations globally, but specifically those operations that you direct and oversee in the Congo. The significant contribution you're making there to supporting the global energy transition. Significant operations indeed, and critically important for that transition. So all it leaves me to do now is to say thank you to you both, to Marie Chantal and to Laura, and to our audience, thank you for joining us until we meet again. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to your weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.